Passion History reading is according to the four Gospels. And this section is titled, Jesus' Readiness to Suffer and Die. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. Jesus said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. They plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Judas asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? They counted out for him 30 silver coins. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, Go into the city. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples went and left and went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. In the evening at the proper hour, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them are given the title benefactor. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. But who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. 
The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, no, not, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Once you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who spares, shares, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it happen, does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for consideration is found recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, beginning at the ninth verse. Jesus told this parable to certain people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others. Two men went up to a temple, went to the temple courts to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. However, 
the tax collector stood at a distance and would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. He was beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went home justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, As a pastor, I can remember, well, in fact, I can't even count on my hands the number of times I have probably scolded kids in preparing them to sing in front of church. And it isn't that I'm scolding them because they're getting out of control or simply being naughty, but scolding them on how they should use their hands. Oh, there'll be little Jimmy, he's got his hands in his pocket, and, and of course you got little Sally who's grabbing her hands and throwing her dress up in, into the air, and you're telling them, guys, put your hand by your side, and then they'll put their hands to their side, standing up straight like a statue, clenching and grabbing their leg tight. Okay, guys, breathe. It's okay to look comfortable, but just keep your hands to your side. By the way, we don't grow out of that on what to do with our hands. I don't know how many times I have seen uh, photographers line up the wedding party, even here in front of church, so that they can get the cross in the picture as a background. And everyone's got their hands different. Some have their hands in their, behind their back. Some have it in front of them. Some have it to the side. Some have it in their pockets. Some have it or they're putting their arm around the person next to them. And the photographer's got to say, guys, we need to all do it the same way. So how do you want to do it? Well, put it in front of you, right hand over left. I hear that over and over again. So what to do with our hands? For this Lenten season, and Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent, which is six weeks, all focusing on the passion of our Lord. In other words, on his suffering and death in order to pay for the sins of the world. And during this Lenten season, where we focus on that passion and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us all, we look at hands. In fact, the theme of our service is going to be hands of the passion. But we're not going to focus in trying to find Bible passages that simply speak about how people may have used their hands or how their hands may have looked. No, because hands are attached to, their, to your body. We're really looking at the life of the person. And, that, and hands always play an important part in your life just to simply live. So we're going to be looking at a number of individuals all under this theme, hands of the passion. And the first set of hands we're going to look at is actually two hands coming from two people that aren't even real, but they are two people who represent real people. You see, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, and this is the last trip he's going to make before he suffers and dies on the cross in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. 
He's visiting, leaving Galilee, visiting a number of towns and villages, perhaps even for the last time. And as he's doing this, we are told that there are some people in the group that think of themselves more righteous than others. And in so doing, they're actually looking down at other people because they feel they're better and God loves them more. Well, to correct their thinking on what real, true, godly righteousness looks like and what's really acceptable in the eyes of the Lord, and along with it, in order to teach them what true repentance is, and it's not what people oftentimes think, Jesus gave them this parable. It was about two men who went to the temple court to go and pray. Now, this is a very common sight, because that's what people would do at the temple court. Even Jesus spoke of the temple court as a house of prayer. But we have two individuals that in the social scale are total opposites. And in fact, we find that their prayer are, are total extremes. Oh yes, they both pray God, but after that, there's nothing similar about their prayers at all. We begin with the man who was called the Pharisee. And in the Hebrew, the word Pharisee actually means a separated ones. So these, these were known as the separatists, if you will, just by their very name. But they were actually known more than that. These were the ones who were the religious ones. These were the ones that you would look up to. These are the ones that if you had a religious question, you go and ask the Pharisees. These were, again, the religious leaders. If you were, if your daughter was dating one of these guys and bringing them home, this would have been a privilege and honor to the entire family. Because to these guys, were the people you not only got biblical advice from, but these were the guys you looked up to. And that is exactly how the Pharisee prayed. He says, God, and he's praying to the true God. But then he goes on to say, I thank you. He doesn't ask God for anything. He's certainly not asking God for help. And it's certainly a wonderful and beautiful thing to go and thank God, but let's continue. Notice what he's thanking God for. I thank you that I am not like others and other people. He thanks God in, in the sense is, I'm not going to ask God for help. I'm going to let God know that he could use my help. God, here I am. Look at how wonderful and great I am. I'm certainly worthy of salvation. I'm certainly worthy of your favor because I'm not like other people. And especially, I'm not like robbers who are taking property that doesn't belong to them because God didn't give it to them. They're breaking the seventh commandment which says, you shall not steal. They're not like adulterers who are cheating on their husband or wife. Oh no, they don't do that. They're not breaking that sixth commandment that says you shall not commit adultery. And in that commandment where God protects sex and marriage, 
Oh, they're not like evildoers, like break the, those that break really all the other commandments. Bearing false witness and, and taking the Lord's name in vain and, and murdering and killing and hurting and harming and not remembering the Sabbath day and keeping and even coveting, coveting their neighbor's wife and, and even coveting their neighbor's property. Oh, these people are the evildoers. And he was not like that. In fact, he was so wonderful and great. He had to break. He, he says here that I fast twice a week. In the Old Testament, there is only one law that said when it came to fasting, God only required it to be done once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom, Yom Kippur. But no, he didn't do it once a year. He did it twice a week. Every Mondays and Thursdays, he would not be eating food because he was religious. And in fact, he was more than religious because he was better than everyone else. God had to take him. God had to accept him. God had to love him because he earned it. He deserved it. And God better do it. Oh, and not only did he fast twice a week. He gave a tenth of all my income. God only required that you give a tenth of the fruit of your field and the offspring of your cattle. But see, they gave more than that. We're even told in Scripture that they would even give a tenth of their herbs. And God didn't even require that. So not only did they live up to God's standard, they went beyond God's standard. They had to be saved. They deserved to be saved. And God, you better save me. What a cruel way. What a cruel prayer to go and build up your own self-esteem and your own self-image by comparing yourself to others. And the temptation is always great to do that. That in order to feel good about yourself, well, go and look at other people. And as long as you're better than someone else, well, then you could feel good about yourself. Or at least that's what we're tempted to think. I'm certainly, isn't the temptation there to simply say, well, I'm certainly more prettier than you are, so that's got to make me great. That's got to deserve God's blessings and favor. Oh, I might have more money than you. Well, that's got to mean I'm greater. Or maybe i got more talents than you do. Or maybe I'm more athletic. Or maybe I'm good at the musical arts. Well, that's got to make me better. God's got to be happy with me. And why can't I be happy about myself? Because I'm better than you are. Maybe i got better grandchildren than you. Maybe I even got more grandchildren than you. Because I had more kids than you. I sent them to the better schools. So look at me. What about me? Focus on me. To build up your self-image and your self-esteem based on that, you will find no hope and comfort at all. There is no peace in that kind of thinking because self-esteem based on self 
always leads to hopelessness and despair. And no matter how much you try to convince yourself, you will never, ever convince yourself. Self-esteem is not founded in self. Self-esteem must be founded in Christ-esteem. In fact, you could say, I don't need self-esteem. I need Christ-esteem. I need the very Savior who is the very Son of God and Son of Man leaving the glories of heaven. I need the very Christ, the very Jesus, the very Savior who came and lived that perfect life that I could not live and then took that righteous and perfect and holy life and, and offered it as a sacrifice on the cross as payment for the sins of the world, a payment that I could not pay and live, but a payment he paid, and he conquered death and rose again. And it is that resurrection that is my assurance that because he lives, I too shall live. It is not self-esteem, but Christ-esteem. And as we grow in Christ, that's where we find comfort and hope in our self-esteem and our self-image. We look at ourselves in the way God looks at us. And we have a gracious God who not only made us, he saved us. You see, there is one thing the Pharisee wasn't realizing. And that's why his prayer was beyond ridiculous. And really, it was ungodly. Even though he did open his prayer with the word God, he didn't see himself for what he really was. He was a sinner who badly needed a savior. His own good works would never save him. This is what the tax collector came to realize when he called himself a sinner. In fact, we're told that he went off by himself. You see, the Pharisee, he prayed for everyone to hear him. He was bragging. The tax collector went by himself to pray privately to God. He lowers his head as a sign of humility and repentance. And not only that, he beats his chest as he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He didn't just all of a sudden come up with the idea that he was a sinner. He knows he's a sinner because the very law of God shows us our sins. We speak of his law as a mirror. When we stand up to God's law of perfect love and we have failed to keep it, that law says we're a sinner and we're deserving and worthy of eternal punishment and hell, being totally separated from God, living under his condemnation and anger because a holy God hates sin and I'm a sinner. And so he cried the prayer that Martin Luther would call the prayer of a beggar. He cried, God, have mercy on me. And literally, in the original language, what's translated, have mercy, literally means don't become angry. 
What he was praying in a nutshell is, God, don't be angry with me. I'm a sinner who deserves that anger. He was crying for repentance, where hope and peace and comfort is really found. And he was praying for God to give him that peace and that forgiveness. And God does not give him the forgiveness simply because he asked for it. And he certainly didn't give it to him because he deserved it. He says, I'm a sinner. He gave it to him purely by his grace and mercy. And by God's grace and mercy, our Savior did pay for the sins on the cross and really did win for us the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus is your Savior. You're not forgiven simply because you're a sinner. You're forgiven because of that mercy and grace of God that he has for you and for the entire world. This is why God wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So when we speak of repentance, repentance is not grading on how great and wonderful you are. Repentance is, as, as, is, ad, is admitting, I am a sinner. God have mercy on me. And with sorrow over sin, we trust in the forgiveness of sins that is ours in Christ Jesus alone. And it is out of thankful love for that God who granted us the free gift of forgiveness that we go and make right the wrongs we've committed, if possible. And that we pray to God each and every day to help me overcome these sinful thoughts and those pet sins and the sinful things I didn't even know were sinful that I committed. God, please have mercy on me. And in Christ Jesus, God wants you to know. In fact, the Holy Spirit is even working in your heart strengthening your heart to know that you are forgiven. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the man went home justified because God forgave him, a sinner, because God paid for his sins. Yes, for a sinner. As we begin this Lenten season, focusing on the suffering and death of our Lord, we do so with hands of repentance. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.